0: Our driving thought for today's message is serving Christ is not the responsibility of a select few, but the privilege of every single believer. The title of our message today is the genius of wrong building the right church depends on using all the wrong people. And if you're in Sunday school today, which we hope that you were, your Sunday school teachers taught on this same subject, so you're going to get a double dose today. Amen. Amen. And we're going we're gonna to address it from a different angle, but before we jump into John chapter 14, and we're just going to, in order to do this, we, we, we don't want to take the Bible out of context. We're going to start there in verse 1 of chapter 14, and we're really going to try to hone in on verses 12 and 13 and verse 14. But before we we get going, um, the title of the chapter that we're studying today is the genius of wrong, once again, building the right church depends on using all the wrong people. And I'm sure that every single one of us today, at one point or another, has had a day or a time or a period in life. I hope that it's not your whole life, but if it is, today is going to be the end of it. To where you have felt completely and totally useless for the kingdom of God. In other words, things that have happened in the past, we feel define us today. And we think that, yes, we believe that God can do all things, and through God all things are possible. But I think that I may be the exception to that, and often life situations have a lot to do with that. And I just need to confess, a couple of weeks ago I was coming back from Lynchburg, and we were there at that traffic light uh, in Bedford, and I don't know why it was just a brain slip. But I didn't notice the car in front of me at the red light. Y'all know where this is going, don't you? Catharsis, it's good for the soul. So I noticed the car's up ahead and I was not paying attention. And I just let off the brake and hit the gas. And I realized that the car in front of me had not moved. So in a split, a nanosecond, I slammed on the brakes and I bumped the car so much that the damage on the car... (laughs) I'm not making this up, was a small imprint of the screw that holds on my front bumper plate. So in other words, the car was totaled. And I got out of the car, I said, I I know I just barely nudged it. And then the lady got out and she was inspecting it and I definitely wasn't going to drive off. I mean, how bad would that be, right? You know, but I say, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And it's my fault. And she said, well, if it was my car, it wouldn't be a problem. We could just part our ways, but it's a company car. And if you ever deal with a company, the company does not forgive. Okay. Can I get a witness in the house this morning? Companies don't have grace. So we waited there for uh, the state trooper to come and to to bide my time. I had just received a folder, and in the folder was a stack of my papers, graded. And these were not just graded by anyone, these were graded, I'm not going to name names, but the notorious I'm just going to say the grade Nazi of the whole program, okay? I opened it up and and, and the the man who, who gave me the papers said, Now Jeff, before you open this folder, I just want you to know that this professor, the one who graded your papers, does this to everyone so don't feel bad. That's never a good sign. It's never a good sign when the director of your program hands you your graded papers from another professor in the program and basically says... If you, think about, if you think about quitting life, if you think about dropping out of the program, don't because this happens to everyone. So I began to open up my papers and I almost thought that they needed to go to the blood bank because there was so much in them. Are you checking with me? I mean, it was absolutely unbelievable. I think I'm going to frame one of them. I have never seen a paper so marked up in my life. I don't know if you've ever had this back like in high school, any level of schooling, and you have the professor put a box around one of your paragraphs and writes the great, theologically significant phrase, Yuck! Exclamation <laughs> point. So I'm there waiting for the, <laughs> the state trooper to come, I nudged the back of a company car so that you could see it was the, I'm not, I'm not making this up. All right. You could see just a small amount of paint was gone around where my screw that was holding on the front bumper plate of my car uh, chipped away. And so I'm, I'm, I'm waiting there knowing, well, this, I'm going to have to take a driver's class or something, you know, it's going to be, uh, so where did you meet our pastor? driving class, right? Moving violation. I'm sitting there reading all this and, and the state trooper, great, great guy, you know, and I don't know if I should have done it, but I, after he was through, he said, do you have any other questions? I had a random question about concealed carry in Virginia. I think that kind of, I said, I don't have a weapon, but just, anyway, just a weird, strange day. And sometimes you have a period in your life like that. And I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands. You have a day like that. You have a week like that. Where if you're married, he or she, husband or wife, wakes up on the wrong side of the bed every day for a month and two. It just seems like, Lord, when is it going to quit? And the heart begins to be troubled. And notice what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, why wouldn't the world would Jesus tell the disciples... Command In the original language, this is a command. It's an imperative. Do not allow your hearts to be shaken and troubled. Go back to verse 36 in chapter 13 of John 13. This is Simon Peter. All right, we all know Simon Peter, the guy with foot and mouth disease, right? The only time he took his foot out is just to change feet. Notice what he says. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? It's a good question. How's this going to pan out, Jesus? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. That's a pretty good speech. Can you just imagine the symphonic orchestra in the background as Peter spoke? Notice. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down. And then the... My life for you. Dramatic. And Jesus shoots it all to pieces. Notice verse 38. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Now, whenever Jesus asks a question, Jesus does it in such a sense that usually that means that you're about to be convicted and broken. Let me just make a point of application here. Often in our Christian lives, When the Holy Spirit, that still small but earth-shattering voice, comes to us and says, Should you continue to go down that road? Should you allow that amount of bitterness to stay in your life? Usually it's the questions from the Lord that bring the most brokenness. And notice what Jesus says after the question. Truly, truly, or if you're reading King James, verily, verily, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, Jesus hadn't yet been crucified on the cross. None of that had happened. That was all future. And here you are, you're Peter and you're the other disciples because Peter was always the guy who kind of just said what most people thought, right? You ever been around that type of person? Where they don't, they don't necessarily say things that are totally idiotic, but they just, you're like, yeah, yeah, that, that. And that's what all the disciples wanted to do, and Peter simply said it. And Jesus is like, oh, by the way, um, you're going to lay down your life for me? Actually, Peter, you're going to deny me, which was treason. Not only are you going to deny me, you're going to do it three times. Imagine that sinks into your heart, and then Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. that's why we have in your notes, if you're following along, we're making the case that everything we're going to try to do here today is going to try to strip away the lies of Satan telling us that ministry and serving Christ is the job of the pastor or some leader in the church. I just want to let you know that God is able to use each and every one of you who've been saved and born again. Trouble has no ownership and a heart that is trusting God. You say, Jeff, why would Jesus say, let not your hearts be troubled? Because there's things in the context of John 13 and 14. What was going to trouble Peter's heart? Imagine if Jesus came to you and said, in your future, you're going to deny everything that you now hold you're going to, let's just put it in American context, you're going to change from being a Christian, a Christ follower, and you're going to embrace some other system of belief that you know is false. Imagine, that just hits like a ton of bricks in in your heart. And imagine Jesus saying, one day, uh, you're not just going to do it once, but uh, several times you're going to betray the people that you love. And then Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Like, what? H- how can my heart not be troubled? I mean, Jesus, you tell me I'm going to do things in the future that are going to dishonor me, dishonor my God. How am I supposed to not be troubled? Here is the reason why trouble has no ownership. We didn't say influence. We didn't say sometimes a, a, an interference. But trouble has no ownership in the heart of someone who's trusting Christ. is because we know that we're going to fail. Can I get an amen on a Sunday morning? That is the very essence of the Christian life. Let me put my Bible down to get the dual hand motions to make the point. The point of the Christian life, a beginning to end, is that we can't. I've talked to so many people and they say, Jeff, I don't know if I could get saved. I just can't live the Christian life. That's the first step. The first step is realizing that I have a heart that is deceitful above all things, and I can't even know it. And so if I can't keep myself from failing, then what basis can I believe Jesus when he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Notice in verse 1, he says, "Believe." In God, believe also in me. Believe means to trust. It means to come to that place to say, Lord, even though you've given me abilities to serve you, at the end of the day, I realize that I can't trust totally in Jeff. Have you come to that point, not totally trusting in Jeff, but in your own life? And I just want to say, those of you who come to the point where you say, Lord, I realize that I'm only where I am by your grace, and I'm only going to stay saved by your grace. Lord, I'm just giving, I'm believing, I'm trusting in you. Isn't that a freeing thing? Because the world wants to place us in slavery that says that everything you have in your relationship with God has to do with your performance. And we just think of, thanks Joseph, if we just think of back in the Bible about how many, well, we could say losers were used by God. When the Bible says believe in God, it means to trust in God with everything that we have. It doesn't mean a compartmentalized faith. I remember um, in... in- Good friend John put me onto this movie, the movie Das Boot. It's about a German U-boat in World War II. And it is one of the most stressful uh, two or three hours I've ever experienced in my life. You feel like you're in there and that you're getting those depth charges just put on. Your, you walk outside your house and you think everything's shaking. And, and I remember one of the statements made by the German captain... When they were able to somehow get the diesel engines running again when the U-boat was sinking. And you could just hear it, it the water pressure it just crushing in. It was going to explode like an egg underneath the water. He says, and I quote, with the right people, nothing is impossible. And that's what the world wants to tell us. In order for your life to be a success, in order for you to be used by God, you've got to get all the right people. who you look in the Bible, it's like God doesn't even know how to look through resumes. I mean, Abram, a coward. You look at David, who broke every single one of the Ten Commandments. Adultery and with murder and with cowardice. You think about every single hero in the Bible almost without exception, and they had huge major issues. And I pray that God has ripped away from our hearts and minds the thought and the idea that a good church is where all of the best people come to showcase their best skills, right? And it's the place to where the, the people with no issues come, and the people with perfect families come, and they're listening to Sound of Music when they pull in the parking lot, and the kids get out of you know Hansel Gretel, and it's just weird. I so be honest, who wants to be a part of a church with that? That's creepy. I'd be so worried being in a church with people with no issues. Like, well, I'm going to go mess it up if I go. You say, now Jeff, well, should there be anything that my heart should be troubled about? Because it seems that we're saying we should almost maybe be comfortable with the fact that we have issues. No, let me be very clear. If you have no desire for the word of God, if you don't enjoy... The teaching of God's word. I'm not talking about a person. I have a preacher. If you don't have a hunger to pick this up during the week. If there's not something deep inside your heart. That moves you to give towards missions. If there's not some motivation in your life. To see people saved. That is a horrifically huge Problem and the 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 root of this it is it is a heart issue. Okay, we're not saying that we should be glorying in our sin, but our sin should help us glory in the one who saves us from it. Does that make sense? You just say, Jeff, I don't even worry about my sin. It's not a big deal. I make excuses. It's what people do. You are in danger. Listen listen to me this morning. You're in danger of the judgment of God because the book of Romans in chapter 2 speaks about in verse 4 about the mercy of God that leads us to repentance. And if we think, please hear me, if we think what nailed Jesus to the cross is a small deal if we think that the sin that caused the Son of God to die a brutal, horrific death, being tortured, death on the cross, if we treat that with flippancy, then Jesus is not real in our life. So when the text says, let not your hearts be troubled, it's speaking of our hearts being connected to and rooted in the greatness of God who can save us from our sin. Secondly, trouble will be past tense when a believer enters heaven. Look at verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, um, right here, let me just make, make a little textual note. Some of our versions translate this mansions, okay? In the original language, it literally means a room in a large house. And there's uh, actually some Christian songs that speak, I've got a mansion over the hilltop. No, you don't. Neither do I. What the Bible's speaking of, this is so cool. It speaks of, notice, where's this going to be? In my, whose house are there many rooms? You still want to hold on to that translation, mansions? Okay. So whatever dwelling place it is, room, mansion, house, it's in the Father's house. So what you could translate this is in the thought behind Jesus saying his words. It's amazing because we're all going to be living in God's house. It's not going to be like some of the twisted conception we get through some of, some of Christian, uh, I guess we could say post-1950 uh, Christian ideas to where if we serve the Lord, we're going to be in the big mansion in heaven, Right? And those people who messed up a little bit over here, they're going to be kind of like in, in a shack. okay? And heaven's supposed to be perfect because those of us who fell in our Christian life, those of us who were not as faithful as we should be, are supposed to never be jealous living in a shack, looking at the mansion that our neighbor has. Whoa, I mean, what is this? That'd be like a third world heaven. The text says, once again, th- th- this is why the Bible, just reading through the Bible, is so revolutionary. It says, in my Father's house are many rooms. The best way that as us as Americans can understand that, this is God's dwelling place, has a bunch of different apartment complexes, and everyone gets to heaven by grace through faith. Amen? Amen. There's nobody that's going to be able to, uh, there's a show on Tim TV, I will gloss over the name of that, but let's just say, show your crib, all right? Show off your place. There'll be no one in heaven who will be able to say, look at my mansion, and how did I get it? Because this guy or girl was faithful to Christ. What's up? Never. Never, never, never. Every person, when they get to heaven, the only thing will be able to say is thanks to Jesus for saving me. Amen? Because if it was up to me, I would not even be here. I would be where I deserve and it's in a place called hell. And in my Father's house, there are many rooms. And in those rooms are people who have all been saved by the grace of God. In all of those rooms, you cannot find one person who can point to one thing they did that got them there other than place all of their faith in Jesus and all the repentance away from sin. And then Jesus says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus is almost like playing a little mind game here saying, you know what guys, why would you think? that I would tell you heaven is real if it's not. Let's, 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 let's put on our floaties here for a minute. Y'all ready to go swim in here just, just for a second in the, in the deep end? Um, <clears throat> if heaven is not real, if Jesus, and we're going to see verse number six here in just a few moments, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father but through me. If all of that isn't true, now check this out. If Jesus was just a good guy who had a lot of patience with a lot of immature people, if Jesus was just, you know, once again, if heaven doesn't exist, how do miracles exist? And, but if Jesus was just able to heal people, but in the end, he was just a good teacher, then what's going to ultimately happen in the universe is what scientists will tell you is called heat death. To where all of the usable energy in the the universe will be used up. In other words, one day the sun will burn out if Jesus does not return. Which we know he will, but let's just imagine for a moment if there is no heaven. If there is no God and Jesus was just another good guy. Just a little bit better. In other words, Jesus kind of gets the A plus plus. Alright? And what that means is that someday, millions of years in the future, billions of years in the future... If planet Earth is able to survive that long. The sun will go out and slowly, at least in our solar system, everything will begin to grow dark and cold until it reaches what scientists will tell you is zero degrees Kelvin. the temperature of total and complete death. And then not only that, the planets will begin to spin out of orbit and then galaxy by galaxy by galaxy by galaxy until the entire thing of what we know as existence, the capital U, the universe, grows dark and cold. And the planets begin to fragment trillions of years in the future. And ultimately, everything is dead and everything is silent. And the words of Jesus did not come true because Jesus said, "Until until all is fulfilled, the word of God, the prophecies of scripture, one jot or one tittle will in no wise pass from the law and then Jesus' words here in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled, would be a total, complete lie because there would be nothing except for a dead, cold universe. And that's why Jesus says there in verse 3, and if I go out, I and prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Do you realize that everything hinges upon the the resurrection of Christ, which proves the existence of God, which proves that miracles are real, which proves that if you trust in Jesus, he can save you from your sin and proves that he will come back and he will change the universe. Amen. He's going to clean up. Everything is going to make it all new. There's not going to be death and destruction. And taxes and mail that you get, and you know, there's not going to be elections. It's going to be one king, and he's going to be totally righteous and pure and good if Jesus is speaking the truth. And because of the resurrection, we know that he did. And notice what the text goes on to say there in verses four through seven. Therefore, follow Christ for direction in the future. Now, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, I just think of my mom. Now, if you are a married man here, I'm not married, but I've learned this valuable lesson from my mom. If you as a man ever invite someone over to the house, you need to give your wife heads up. And all the women said, amen. I remember as a child, I thought that Armageddon was very close When my dad, in the spirit of openness and hospitality would invite people over on a moment's notice. And my mom, and those of you who have met my mom, I mean a definite winner. All right, she is so hospitable. If you come over to the house, she says, can I get you something to drink? If you say, no, ma'am, I'm fine, she'll set something down to drink anyway. And if you say, she says, can I get you something to eat? You say, no, ma'am, I just ate. She'll get us to like hold you down and stuff mashed potatoes in your mouth. I mean, Southern hospitality to a T, And sometimes dad would say, well, so-and-so's coming over and mom would go into preparation mode. That means it'll match any drill sergeant, but it's not for pushups. It's for cleaning everything from the baseboards to the mantle to you name it. Getting things ready for guests. Why? Because she values people. And when Jesus says here that he is going to prepare the place, imagine what the place is going to be like that Jesus is preparing. Isn't that going to be cool? I mean, you think about everything that Jesus has done. How amazing is it going to be where Jesus is preparing a place for us to be? It's going to be absolutely awesome. And then, I love it. Here we go. The disciples. This is like Dumb and Dumber in verse 5. Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. <laughs> I love this. this is so, by the way, if, if we could just get out of the mentality that the Bible is not a real book... Uh, with real people in it. There's tons of humor in this. All right, Jesus just get, Wasn't that cool? And we just explained, there's so much more stuff he go into. We just, we just explained that we're 2,000 years later. Imagine what it would have been like if you would have heard Jesus. It would have been like, wow. And then Thomas, doubting Thomas. So here's technical Thomas. Says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Before we jump on Thomas, and by the way, a lot of times we're really hard on the disciples, aren't we? But if we just took a step back, we'd see ourselves in the disciples' questions. Thomas is simply saying, you know what? How is this thing going to turn out? And then, um, it's amazing, we're going to hop over to verse 8 and come back to verse 6. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So Philip is from Missouri. He's saying, show me. So Thomas is wanting to, some of y'all get that? They show me, okay, all right, we're tracking. I, I worked on that for like an hour. I'm just kidding. So, so you've got Thomas who's saying, okay, Jesus, show me how it all fits together. And Philip is saying, show me how I can see it. Jesus in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also from now on. You do know him and I've seen him. And let me just make a note here. Um, If you have questions on the Trinity, that is good. And we encourage you to go to our website. We've got a lot of great stuff there um, that you can find on that. But notice what Philip, he says, can you show us? And Jesus says in verse 9 all the way through 11, he begins to talk about the unity of God. Jesus is saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father's demonstration of his reality. And our notes also say... Uh, there in verse number 12, this is where we're going to hammer on the rest of our, our time here. Be assured that believers will do works greater in quantity, but not in quality, than Christ himself. No, notice verse 12. Here's how Jesus sums this up. He says, "...Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Now, there's a statement there in your um, bulletin that I'd like us to read together from David Platt in the book. Because there are some people who say, well, this teaches that we're going to be better than Jesus. Listen to what the statement is. The Spirit's anointing on us is not stronger in quality than it was on Jesus. After all, he was sinless. As a result, his relationship with the Spirit of God was totally unhindered. We will do greater things, not because of the quality of the Spirit in select ones among us, but because of the quantity of the Spirit spread throughout all of us. And that's the amazing part of the gospel, that whosoever trusts in Christ will do amazing things, except for you and me. Right? Right? Is is there anybody, you were looking at that, you're like, right, it's in the Bible, it's true. Whoever believes in me, that's whoever. I'm not whoever, I'm whatever your name is. In me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. In other words, what in the world does this mean? It means that if you trust in Christ, and you notice verse 13, here's the key. Whatever, what does whatever mean? It means... That's right. You know what? We've got some some sharp knives in the drawer here at Rocky Mount Baptist Church. Do you know what? We even looked it up in Greek. Guess what whatever means in Greek? Whatever. Do you know what it means in Hebrew? It means whatever. Open doors. It says, whatever you ask in. Notice right here. This is where a lot of us get very confused. Whatever you ask in my name. This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now now let's just put on the brakes for just a second and come under the speed limit. When Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, he's not just saying that we can pray anything we want, and then at the end of the prayer, in Jesus' name. That's kind of like quoting... Uh, Let's say if we got a terrorist organization, uh, Hezbollah or Al-Qaeda, and we recited their pledge or their system of beliefs. And we said it like we meant it. And at the end, we said, God bless America. It doesn't match. One is contrary to the other. So when Jesus is saying, I hope that this will, if we grab onto this point, it will help us simply reading the Bible in any sense. When Jesus says in my name, it literally means anything and everything that connects to who Jesus is. How do we know who Jesus is? We look at what he has done. And I put this statement in there and I would ask that you would read it with me as well. Many believe that John 14, 13 and 14 is a proof text. And what you say, Jeff, what is a proof text? It's a spiritual astounding excuse for selfishness. Alright? To claim that anything we ask for, God is obliged to give us. The twisting of these verses is revealed by people asking for unneeded material luxuries... Once again, not praying that the Lord will provide what we need, but luxuries, which always reveals the state of the heart, instead of asking for a deeper knowledge of God and a wider outpouring of His Spirit upon a world fractured by sin. And please catch this last statement. The key is, quote, in my name has everything to do with spiritual freedom, meeting the basic needs of the poor, and is in total opposition to covetousness and materialism. What we ask for is what we value. Jesus is not saying this is an excuse for you to ask for more stuff just because we like stuff. But it's to ask for God to do what He promised to do. And that's give us things that are really important. A.K.A. people. Do you know why this building is of use? Because we can all come here and meet and talk about Jesus. Amen, church? Do do you know why the rooms that we meet for Bible study in, we give the thumbs up to? It's because people can come and study the Bible there. But we don't value this building. We don't value the new chairs. As cool as a piano as this is, we don't sit here and and have a, a, a group meeting and surround the piano. Okay, give me five reasons why you like the piano. No! We have everything that we have so that we can use it to reach people. You say, well, "Well, whose job is that? It's all of our job." But I don't want to even phrase it like that because sometimes we can hear, "Well, it's your responsibility; it's what you should do." Uh, look at look at your your notes. The number one towards the end there: professional or ministry in church is not the job of professional ministers, but of every believer. And there's a statement. Um, that I didn't have room to include, but I'm going to read it to you. And this comes from Jim Groen. He says, quote, the first reformation took place when the word of God got into the hands of the common people, right? Remember when they unchained the Bible and they translated it into German and English and French in Europe? Uh, The second reformation, he says, will take place when the word of God gets into the hands of the common people. You know what that means? That this is not just... For a preacher, pastor like me, but God is able to use every single one of us to do amazing things. Now right here, often we say, now Jeff, what is church really for? And we read the words of Jesus, but I mean, what is this thing that we do here on Sunday mornings? And often it can be like going to the movies. Okay, it's been a while since I've been to the movies because I'm so busy. But every time I've gone, my experience has been like this. I like the movie or I don't like the movie based upon these things. And you know how I know whether I like a movie or whether I don't? Whether I like the movie. Whether it fits me. Whether it is what I like. And sometimes we can come to church. We can come to church with the same mentality, can't we? We can come in and say, well, I like the music, I don't like the music, I like the preaching, I don't like the preaching, I like when Jeff wears a tie, I don't like when Jeff wears a tie, I like when the choir sings that song, I don't like when the choir sings that song. I really like when the kids come up and try to light the thing, that's the most entertaining part of my service, because sometimes they don't get it right, but now we've got butane lighters, so it's all good and no wax, amen, All right, no business meeting anymore. So, I mean, all of that, and we can come, and it can almost be like, it can almost be like, we're, can I sit down and not freak y'all out? Oh, here, okay, we see it. It can almost be like we come to church and we sit down in the seats, and it's like we're spectators. And that's not what Jesus says at all. Jesus says, once again, in verse twelve, "Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do." God can use everyone, and He desires to use every single person. Number two, ministry church is not a Sunday morning event, but a way of life. Ministry and church is not a place, but it's a purpose. Finally, if you are saved, you are a minister of God and God can greatly use you. And the time is up for people to say enough to the lies of the enemy. Amen, church? Because Satan, every single one of us have VCR tapes that we can replay of things in our past. And if you've been saved here today and you have confessed that, Christ has forgiven you. He's washed it away. He has gone to the marker board of your life. He's gotten the rubbing alcohol. He has squirted it on there and he has wiped it clean. In Christ, you are forgiven and you are justified, but the enemy will come to you and say, well, Jesus says, here, put that down. Let me talk to you for a Do you really remember what happened? I mean, I know you've got a few years on you, but I mean, shouldn't you remember the way it really went down? And are you sure that God would actually forgive you? Yeah, sure, he's God and all of that. But do you think that he would forgive you? Maybe. Satan often concedes the theological abstracts that we believe. But do you think he could use you? Because here's all the things that you don't know. And then we remember when you were in, in kindergarten, you couldn't even color in the lines. Do you really think that God could use someone who couldn't color in the lines? And, and then that relationship and that divorce and fill in the blank and fill in the blank. And all of that. I remember when Martin Luther had a dream. And he said Satan came to him. And he had this huge scroll of all of the sins that Luther had ever committed. And Satan continued to say all sin. All sin. And shake it in his face. All sin. And Luther said in his dream he was terrified until he remembered the phrase from the Bible, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. And it is time for people who have been born again and saved and transformed and forgiven by God of their past to come to the place and say, Satan, I was there, I was that way, but Jesus changed me and here's what he's made me today. I bear no good works of my own, but I promise you, Satan, based on the word of God, if Jesus says he can use anyone, whatever, whomever, he can use me. Because He is stronger than my sin. And some of you need to grab a hold of that today. Be very forceful and very open and honest. It is time for the church of Jesus Christ in America today to take the words of Jesus more serious than we do our opinions about who we were. Jesus is able to change and Jesus is able to use people who were once broken and fractured in sin. But if you don't believe that, then it's an element of pride saying, I believe that my sin is so great and Jesus is so feeble. Change it today and say, Jesus, I trust you to be able to use me because I know that throughout your word, building the right church requires all the wrong people. If you've ever seen the movie American History X with um, depicted uh, horrible race relations and neo-Nazis and the black gangs there in LA. And I remember when <clears throat> when Derek Edward Norton got out of prison after murdering two men. And his younger brother had written a paper in high school on Mein Kampf. Not a historical paper, but I like that, I believe that paper. And went into his younger brother's room, which used to be his, and covering the walls well, not historical artifacts, but like, I want to be like that. Everything from stormtroopers to swastikas, everything having to do with the filth of Nazi Germany. And in prison, he had had an experience that had led him away from that hate-filled life and wanting to mend the repairs of his broken past. As he talked to his younger brother and reasoned with his younger brother, his younger brother changed. And it was such an amazing image To see both of them going to the walls and taking down posters and taking down flags, taking down armbands of Hitler youth. And then they're looking at the walls that are now bare that used to symbolize the sin of their old life. And that's what needs to happen for many of you today. Even if you are a church member for years and decades, often there are people who have that area in their life to where they said, this is what happened, but I don't think that I can take these things down and put up Jesus instead. Today is the day to take it down. And today is the day to trust Christ who is more powerful than what we did. The text says, Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And there is nothing that fits better with the name of Jesus than Jesus forgive me, Jesus save me, and Jesus use me. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. For the believer here today who is struggling... With the question, not so much, God, can you forgive me? But you're struggling with the question, God, I don't know how you could use me. Because you compare yourself to other people. Today, the word of God, what we've studied and what we have read, is reaching out to you. The hand of God is reaching out to you, asking you to take his hand in faith. Trusting him in obedience to say, Lord, I'm going to forget What is behind? And I'm going to press forward. I'm going to ask you, Lord, today that you would use me. And Lord, I'm placing my faith in you. I know that you've forgiven me. But Lord, before now, I've doubted that you could use me. But today, Lord, I'm placing my faith in you that you could use me to do great and mighty things. If you're a believer here and and, and you're dealing with that, I encourage you just in this moment right now. Ask the Lord, say, Lord, would you use me in a great way? Would you give me faith to trust that you can? And then undoubtedly there are some of you today and you have had a church experience. You may have been baptized, you may have been sprinkled, but you know deep down in your heart that Jesus has never changed you to the point that you have a passion and a desire for him. You have never been born again. And today God is showing you through often the guilt that comes in our hearts when we hear the word of God explained. The Bible tells us that the soul that sins, it will die. And that's not just speaking of physical death, it's speaking of eternal death in a place called the lake of fire, hell. But Christ came and he died so that you don't have to go there. In this time, in this moment, repent, turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus alone, not in your goodness but only in the perfection and the righteousness of Christ. You do that right now and ask the Lord to save you. And whatever the Lord is leading on anyone's heart here today, whether to come pray for someone here at the front, pray for yourself. If there's anyone here, the Lord is drawing you to join here by letter or baptism or statement. We want you to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. If you're here today visiting and you're angry, With a church that you're a member of, we encourage you to go back to that church and first make peace with them and then examine whether the Lord wants you to come here. Lord, we ask that you would have your way in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.